Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights podcast with an appetite-wetting selection of items from all our coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And on your menu this week, Mumbai plans the world's tallest statue, the underlying maths of life, and whether the English language will survive in the European Union. But first, Macron's mission was our cover line. After a resounding victory over his opponent, Emmanuel Macron was sworn in as President of France on May the 14th. His achievements so far have surprised many, but the road to much-needed reform of the country will be bumpy. He deserves to succeed, our cover leader argued. To become head of state, he created a new political movement and bested five former prime ministers and presidents. His victory saved France and Europe from the catastrophe of Marine Le Pen and her far-right National Front. At a time when democracies are being dragged to the extremes by doubt and pessimism, he has argued from the centre that his country must be open to change because change brings progress. Nonetheless, far from all of the French were on board. He trounced Ms Le Pen. But if you count abstentions, blank ballots and votes cast chiefly to keep her out, only a fifth of the electorate positively embraced his brand of new politics. And history isn't entirely backing him up either. Each of the past three French presidents has promised reform and then crumpled in the face of popular resistance. His focus, we suggested, should be on the joblessness that's robbed the French of hope. However, although the economics is straightforward, the politics is toxic. Each reform, much as it benefits a job seeker, makes someone already in work less secure. Mr Macron therefore needs to be ambitious and swift. To find out exactly how and where, pick up a copy of this week's issue. So Mr Macron is hoping to secure his place in the history of France, while over in India, a former prince is about to be memorialised again with a larger-than-life statue. An article in our Asia section reported on the swashbuckling prince getting a budget-busting memorial. It may have named the airport, the main railway station, a big road, a park, a museum, a theatre and at least six traffic intersections after him. But Mumbai has not done enough to commemorate Shivaji, a swashbuckling warrior prince who founded a local kingdom in the 17th century. No, it seems his admirers still aren't satisfied. The obvious solution, according to all the big political parties in the state of Maharashtra, of which Mumbai is the capital, is to build an absolutely enormous statue of him on an artificial island in the ocean near the city. Over time, the totem has grown in stature. When this idea was first cooked up in 2004, the statue was planned to be 98 metres tall to top the Statue of Liberty, which is a mere 93 metres. But then the neighbouring state of Gujarat decided to build a 182 metre figure of Vallabhai Patel, an independence hero. Maharashtra's government resolved to make the statue of Shivaji the tallest in the world 
at 192 metres. But then a spanner in the works. Turns out there was a Buddha in China at 208 metres high. So now Maharashtra's government is aiming for 210 metres. The budget for the project is soaring too. The sum budgeted for the statue is seven times what Maharashtra spends on building and maintaining rural roads each year. Or, for the historically minded, enough to restore 300 forts around the state, including several built by Shivaji. A towering irony too, then. When Britain leaves the European Union, will the English language become but a distant memory outside these shores? Some murmurings from Brussels suggest so, but an article in our Europe section weighed up the evidence. Slowly but surely, English is losing importance. Quipped Jean-Claude Juncker the president of the European Commission, before switching to French for a speech on May 5th. A fine quip, but is it the truth? Well, no, not really. Speakers of La Langue de Shakespeare have little to worry about. The European Union has 24 official languages, three of them considered working languages, French, German and English. The three enlargements of the EU since 2004 have decisively shifted the balance in Brussels from French towards English. There is no consensus for going back, still less for switching to German. Outside of Brussels, English is flourishing across the continent and societies aren't quick to change the languages they speak. The trend of English in Europe began well before the vote for Brexit and is unlikely to dissipate even slowly but surely. Mr Juncker might better have said that although Britain unfortunately is exiting the EU, its former partners will always remember the linguistic gift it is leaving behind. In our science and technology podcast, Babbage, we analysed the consequences left behind by recent increases in greenhouse gases. Our environment correspondent, Miranda Johnson, recently travelled to the Arctic to see the effects of global warming at first hand. Here she explains why the quickly melting ice is exacerbating the situation in the north. There are all sorts of feedback loops going on and and we see this around the world with climate change, feedback loops both positive and negative but certainly when you replace ice with dark water that ensures that the region kind of gets warmer and warmer and speeds up warming which is why the Arctic is warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world on average. Is exacerbating the situation in the north. So while Babbage dived into the fate of the environment, in this Thursday's episode of The Economist Asks, we wondered what the future is for Western liberal ideas. Bill Emmett, a former editor of The Economist, joined me to discuss the way liberals need to adapt if they're to succeed. Well, I think that what liberal governments, what liberal parties need to do is to find new ways to provide a sense of equality for citizens. And I think it's been neglected. It's been given lip service by too many liberal governments who have thought well, rapid economic growth will just um, somehow bail us out and make everyone mildly happy enough to elect us the next time. And that just hasn't worked in the last 10 years. And in the week ahead, our new British election segment, First Past the Post-Truth, tangled with the fortunes of the Labour Party and whether Marx had a point. In fact, if you look at what's happening to the global capitalist system, Marx has more to say about what's happening now than he has had for many decades. We have an extraordinary degree of concentration of power in the hands of a few companies, giant companies like Google. We have an extraordinary degree of casualisation of labour 
other. And we have massive inequality with, with the bosses paying themselves huge amounts of money. And what Marx said is capitalism is a system of rent. And what we see is a lot of rent extraction by the bosses at the moment. So I think there's truth in what uh, Marx is saying. That's our new spokesman for the Momentum Movement on air right now. No, I do go on to say what's wrong with Corbyn. And what's Flicking on to our Money Talks podcast, we reported on a huge step forward for Chinese manufacturing with the development of its first large passenger plane. Our business correspondent, Charles Reed, explained that the development is ruffling the feathers of the airline industry's big birds, Airbus and Boeing. Both playmakers uh, expect China to be their biggest market over the next 20 or so years. They worry about losing a share of, of the Chinese market to them, but they are more worried still about the generation of aircraft to come after this. When China has actually learnt how to build these things more cheaply than the current generation. So with China building up its aeronautical array, it's time to turn to our books and arts section, where we explored the universal laws underpinning growth. A review took on an ambitious new work called Scale about the hidden maths of organisms, cities and companies. Geoffrey West is the restless sort. He has spent much of his career as a theoretical physicist, working at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico. He is interested in all sorts of things, from Isambard Kingdom Brunel's ship designs to Ingmar Bergman's films. When he says that he drives his wife nuts, you believe him. He's channeled all this energy into a book about the universal laws of life and death. Many things that appear unrelated are actually linked, he says. The size of an animal is related to the speed of its metabolism and its lifespan. If you know the population of a city and what country it is in, you can predict fairly accurately how many petrol stations it has and how many patents its citizens produce. Mr West even suggests that the mice and the metropolises are linked. He's fascinated by the widely evident non-linear relationships of scale. A city that is twice as populous as another does not have twice as much infrastructure and twice as much productivity. It has a bit less infrastructure than you would expect and a bit more productivity per head, as well as more crime. While compelled by Mr West's work, our reviewer did think that scale itself suffered from a problem of, well, scale. A ruthless editor could have excised at least a quarter of the words and created a tighter, more compelling book. Size is not always everything. Our final taste of this week's coverage from The Economist comes from our obituary section about one man who spent his life scaling great heights, Uli Steck, the speed-soloing alpine climber. The most terrifying thing that happened to Uli Steck was not the moment an avalanche caught him on Annapurna, the tenth highest mountain in the world, and almost knocked him off. Nor was it the time when, perhaps because on the same mountain a rock hit his helmet, he found himself in an instant 300 metres below, concussed and bruised all over. Granted, these events gave him pause, but not for long. No, the most frightening episode occurred in April 2013, when he found himself under attack by a crowd of rock-throwing Sherpas at Base Camp 2 on Everest. That was the moment he thought he might die, a thought he had not had before. The Sherpas were angry because, as they fixed the safety ropes above the camp, he and two others had ignored the rule to keep the mountain clear of climbers and had come up past them. He had no wish to be disrespectful, but since he made no use of safety ropes, why shouldn't he go up? This attitude carried him swiftly up many of the world's peaks. Naturally, he preferred to climb alone. Trodden tracks deterred him 
and he would wait until fresh snow obscured a route in order to work out his own. After his marriage, he promised his wife he would not do solo climbs, but somehow the right partner did not appear or gave up, and he had to go on by himself. We finished our trek through the week two, and we're at the end of this week's tasting menu. Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue, and you can find all of our other podcasts online. Do keep sending us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.